Financial residency podcasts are brought to you this week by weatherbyhealthcare.com. Just as the right advice helps you thrive financially, the right support team allows you to excel professionally. Weatherby Healthcare's locums experts will match you with the best jobs, prepare you for success, and provide 24-7 support. The bottom line is that working locums with Weatherby helps you earn more money and take better control of your career. If that sounds like music to your ears, head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com payday to get started. Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Today, I am so happy to welcome Evan Schwartz, who is the founding partner with Schwartz, Conroy, and Hack in Manhattan, New York. His firm focuses on insurance recovery and litigation, and I especially like the slogan on his website that said, making insurance companies keep their promises. So welcome to the show, Evan. Thank you so much, Dr. Tammy. Appreciate it. (laughs) Absolutely. We've done a few shows in the past to kind of help educate physicians on the ins and outs of choosing a disability policy, but that really got me thinking about, you know, what happens when the time comes, the unthinkable happens, and you actually have to file it. I know from a physician standpoint, we all know that insurance companies don't like to pay out, and they'll do a lot of things to try and keep the money in their own pocket. So I figure there's a lot of pitfalls and processes we need to understand. So thanks for coming on the show to kind of help us with that. My absolute pleasure. I guess maybe we start with the policy itself. How do you help someone understand what their policy says, what they what their benefits might be? I guess that's where you would start. Absolutely. Every, everything in insurance recovery, including long-term disability, starts with what do your contracts say? What do your policies say? And physicians, healthcare providers can come in all shapes and sizes when it comes to policies. So the first question I always want to know is what policies do you have? What types of policies do you have? And that can range from a whole gamut of things. So a lot of physicians have been marketed to and purchased their own policy, some in residency, some later, where they bought what I'll call individual disability income insurance policies, or they call it IDI in the business or private policies, some people say. So those are usually the first place we start. And then we move to, well, if you're affiliated with it and working in a practice, or you're affiliated with a large medical group or a hospital in some way, shape, or form, you might have great long-term disability insurance that was sponsored by your group. And so we need to know about those. Then if you're, a, if you're an owner of a practice, you may have something called DBO or disability buyout insurance, where uh, the policy will pay either you or your practice to buy you out if you become disabled and unable to perform or it is the occupation you are as a healthcare provider that will help reimburse the practice to, to buy you out. There's also something called BOE or business overhead expense insurance for those that own practices that will help cover 
the monthly expenses of the practice while someone is disabled. And in connection with business overhead expense, or really more with disability buyout, beyond that, this isn't just policies. Also, you probably have employment contracts and or some partnership or member agreement that will define what it means to be disabled and define what you may or may not be entitled to as a member of the firm. So typically we want to see those. That's, you know, if you're an employee or you're not an owner, that's not going to be an issue. And then I would say finally, life insurance. Life insurance typically has waiver of premium provisions for disability. So if you have life insurance policies, term policies less so, other forms of whole or universal life may have better provisions, but some of those provisions can provide a substantial benefit to the owner. And so generally, hey, we need to see the gamut of all of this. Do you have these things? Let's take a look at them and see how we're going to need to deal with each and every aspect of these various policies. So that's where I start. Okay. I know one of the things that when I had Larry Keller on the show, he was talking about the policy being very specific to the physician's occupation. How does that play into you determining what the, pay, what the physician has in their benefit? Larry Keller, I know from Physician Financial Services, he's a fabulous broker and a very knowledgeable broker. And he and I love to talk long-term disability at length. But having said that, so what we're talking about is the own occupation provision of long-term disability policies. And it's very important that any lawyer or insured that's going to look at those policies carefully understands what the definition is in the policy of the insured's occupation. And that can really vary. So a lot of physicians will come to my office and they will think, that they're insured for the general occupation that they originally had when they got the insurance. These policies are non-cancelable and portable. They go with you wherever you go. And the importance of that is if you have an own occupation definition, the first thing that anyone needs to know is when you file a long-term disability claim, the policy is going to talk about the occupation that you're engaged in when you become disabled. Not what you were doing when you bought the policy. It's only going to be what's going on. And so we typically will look back for a period of maybe a year or so to see, okay, what have you been doing? And it's not what your title is. Your title is not relevant. It's what your duties are. What are your duties? And the policies will typically say something like um, the own occupation, you'll get paid if you cannot perform the material and substantial duties of your occupation at the time you become disabled or the principal duties of your occupation or the important duties of your occupation. And if you have one of those clauses, that then is the question, what is your occupation? And so let's say you're a surgeon. Well, if you're a surgeon, you're going to have to prove to the insurance company you're a surgeon and they're going to want to see one of the first place they're going to go is your tax returns and your CPT codes. Let's see what you've been, or if you're a dentist, dentist and you're doing CGT codes, it depends, whatever, you know, but they're going to want to analyze the codes to see, do we believe that you're really a full-time surgeon? And that can get into, when we look at these, we look, what is somebody's practice? Are they a surgical practice where 
all the referrals that come into them are being evaluated because they're potential surgical candidates. And when they are doing surgery, are most of their in-office visits pre and post-op or not? And where is the bulk of their income coming from? And so you look at this as a whole and say, are we going to be able to support that you are, in fact, a surgeon? Or are you really a, a clinical practitioner that performs surgery on a more infrequent basis, in which case the insurance company may say, you're not really a surgeon. You're really a clinician, a practitioner. You're really someone that sees a lot of patients as an ear, nose, and throat specialist for non-surgical problems and minor in-office things, not going into the OR and doing surgeries on a regular basis. So that is a place that's a trap for a lot of physicians who think they have, hey, I was, I'm a surgeon. So, and you know, to just use an analogy, I do with lawyers all the time. Lawyers will come to me and say, I'm a trial lawyer. Okay, well, when was the last time you tried a case? Well, I tried one last year. And what were you doing all the other times? Well, I was doing depositions and motion practice. Well, you're not really a trial lawyer, man. That makes sense. Once in a while, but a trial lawyer, someone who's doing it regularly, they're in court all the time. And since the the surgeon is an analogous concept, are you are you regularly taking call? Are you regularly in the OR? You know, obviously, surgeons aren't in in the OR five days a week, but it's a holistic view of what your occupation is, and it becomes a battle with these insurance companies if there's gray area in there about what you're actually doing. Separately. If you gave up surgery and now you're a hospital administrator, when you become disabled, they're going to look at you at a hospital administrator, not that you were a surgeon when you bought the policy. So in those scenarios, does that actually make the policy null and void or do they tend to pay out less or maybe it runs the gamut? I don't know. It doesn't change anything about the policy itself. So it's just a question of are your restrictions and limitations medically supported such that you cannot perform your occupational duties? And that's always the question. So uh, me as a lawyer, I may need to have more serious restrictions and limitations to be unable to chat on a podcast or talk to a client or email or get on a Zoom call with a judge. I'm not standing over a patient in an OR. My restriction limitations are going to be no more severe if you're now a hospital administrator as opposed to a surgeon then the restrictions and limitations are going to have to be different and maybe more severe physically for you to be unable to perform that job. I mean, unremitting back pain is unremitting back pain, right? No matter what you do. Or cognitive impairment is cognitive impairment. Executive function is executive function. If you can't do it, you can't do it. But it's always what are your restrictions and limitations and do they prevent you from performing the occupation you're performing when you become disabled? Okay. Kind of jumping off on that back pain analogy, how do you go back and determine when the disability actually happened? Does it go back to the date of the injury or if the injury progresses over time and it becomes so severe that you can't do your work? How do you determine that date? So that's interesting. And that's something we spend a decent amount of time with certain clients, many that are physicians who will often change the way in which they're performing their duties to continue to practice. 
And so the question, there are a lot of questions that can come up there, but the date of disability or the date of loss, okay, as you call it, and proof of loss under policies, two different things, but the date of loss is when the injury or sickness either prevents or limits you from performing your occupational duty. And that gets into, does your policy have a total disability provision and a partial or residual disability provision where you are limited from performing your occupation and you have a drop in income as a result, okay? So trigger of coverage is what we call this. When was, when, when did you become disabled? Well, when was coverage triggered under the policy? The simple analogy is if your house burned down on January 1st, that is the date of loss, no matter what else happened, whether you told the insurance company, whether you committed fraud, whether you, no matter what happens, the house burned down on January 1st. In, in long-term disability, it's a little compli more complicated, but it's when your injury or sickness prevented or limited you from performing your occupation. And then if it's you're limited, so you're still doing some, but not all, then you have to have, a, in most policies, you're going to have to have a drop in income that qualifies you for benefits. So if we're talking about total disability, when did you, doctor, stop doing surgery and then switch to non-surgical clinical practice because you wanted to keep practicing? So that's the date that you became totally disabled. Now we'll deal with, well, did you ever tell anyone? Did you ever make a claim? Did you ever prove it? Do you have proof that you were disabled at that time? And how are we going to prove that? Do you have a problem with late notice? Do you have a problem with late proof of loss? That's separate issues. But that's when you became disabled. It's when, when your occupation changed and it changed due to a sickness or an injury. That's date of disability. And if it's residual, it's when your occupation changed and you had that drop in income caused by the sickness or the injury. It sounds like that could be extremely complicated. I mean, if you were a surgeon and your back hurt, so your partners kind of took over and, you know, you did less surgery or no surgery for six months so they could try and help you. A good example is, yeah, you stop taking call. Yeah. And you perform less complex, less lengthy procedures because of that. And your practice cuts your salary. Boom. Depending on the size of the cut. Okay. Now, if you were a... If you're still doing surgery, you're not going to be able to argue you're totally disabled. Now you're in the residual disability world of when did that drop in income occur? When did you stop taking call and trying to hold all that together? Were you seeing a doctor? Were you treating for your condition? Did the, did the doctor and you have a conversation, you know, and that supporting all that is going to be the part of what we help the client do, but that's when it happens, right? So that's a simpler example. A lot of people, they change what they're doing. And as a lawyer doing these claims, I want the client to lock in the occupation when it was the most demanding and use that as the benchmark going forward under the policy so that if they successfully file residual claim that they've stopped taking call, they're progressing medically and getting worse and they are still doing surgery. I want a claim to go in when they were the most busy surgeon so that when they go total, they're totally disabled from that occupation that was the most demanding. And it will most likely 
enhanced, they're going to continue to get their benefits for as long as the policy pays them. So that's, it's an interesting, um, and it gets more problematic when people do those things and then they come to us and we're like, wait, when? You stopped five years ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago? Now, how are we, what are we going to do about that? And maybe you're not entitled to benefits, but maybe we're going to be able to show that was your occupation. Maybe not, you know, it's a, that's the lawyering part of it. <laughs> how do you go about finding the medical support? I mean, a, a lot of us just kind of bear through the pain and we do what we need to do and maybe don't see a doctor right away. How do you go back and prove any of that? If you don't have medical support, it's going to depend on a number of factors in terms of you're going to need a doctor no matter what, even if you weren't seen. And most likely, if you've got something severe, you will have seen somebody. Even if you didn't stop working or didn't get a diagnosis, typically people will see somebody. Doctors will often, look, most people in a high-performing job like, like a surgeon or a physician, they don't want to tell people what's going on, which if they haven't changed their occupation and they're consulting privately with someone because they're worried about Am I exposing myself to malpractice? I don't want my partners to know. I don't want the hospital to know. I don't want anyone to know because I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing here. So the best thing I could say to anyone who's going through that process, if you're not changing work and not stopping work, then you're less at risk. But the problem being, if it's a progressive condition, the company's going to want to know, well, when did you start treating for it? And when did it get to that point where you stopped? So I would say the minute you have this problem where you are worried, there's something going on, I'm losing feeling in my finger, I'm, I'm dropping instruments, I, whatever it is, I've got pain, I'm struggling through procedures, talk to a lawyer first about what to do and what not to do. Have that confidential conversation. You know, in my firm, we do it all the time. People come in, they talk to us, and then we may never hear from them again. Or three years later, they call us because they're ready to make a claim. Or, or they engage us and we have an ongoing conversation as and when necessary. Hey, I'm at this stage. I'm at this stage. What should I do now? What should I do now? But talk to somebody who can look at your policies and give you the roadmap of what's going to happen that you can make smart choices. If and when it comes time to file that claim, you know what you need to do. So that's the problem in the medical support world. You're going to need that support. And you're going to need to know what to do. But how do you establish medical support? Well, number one, you need a diagnosis. And that doesn't mean you can't get paid without a diagnosis, but it gets a lot harder. And I've had many clients that walk into our office that have seen doctors and have symptoms and have problems, but they're not with the right physician. They're not with the right specialty and they haven't done the things they need to do to get appropriately diagnosed. Now, generally speaking, physicians are better at least trying to figure out what's going on with them, maybe than sometimes non-physicians, but we get that too. And making sure that you have that diagnosis and that you explore properly what's going on and then making sure the doctor is the appropriate specialty to support what it is that's disabling you. And lastly, that doctor's willing to be an advocate for you. And when I say an advocate, I mean, they're willing to fill out the paperwork. They're willing to say, hey, we'll support. I will support you if you need to stop. 
I'll fill out the attending physician statement. I'll write a narrative. If I have to, you know, I'll do things to help you to support your claim. Some doctors will say, hey, I'm not doing that. Or the hospital won't let me do that. Or, you know, I'm a surgeon. I cut. Don't get, don't bother me with paperwork. And whether that's right or wrong, the insured needs to understand that this doctor may not be, this doctor may be great to help me and treat me, but this is not the doctor I'm going to be able to use to support my claim. Okay. The insurance company will get the medical records from them and the notes and the chart, but they're not going to be the one that's going to fill out the form. And that's something that needs to be addressed. So, and obviously when you're, you know, the other thing is you have comorbidities and maybe it's a combination of things that disable you and not just one. And maybe you need support from more than one specialist. So what is, what is it that's affecting your ability to do your job? Who's going to support it? And will they support it? Or the linchpins of how you're going to unlock the door to money. The last thing I'll say is there are many conditions that are physical that cause cognitive impairment. And a lot of people miss that part of it. And obviously as a, someone, we call it executive function, like lawyers, doctors, accountants, people in the business owners, if they don't have good executive function, you don't want your, you don't want to be re represented by a lawyer who has cognitive impairment. You don't want to be treated by a doctor that has cognitive sure. So that needs to be diagnosed and measured sometimes. Um, and we have spent so many years sending clients for neuropsychological evaluations. We have the neurologist write the script. And then quite often we will tell the client, you know, go get one. Or if you're going to get one, go see this neuropsychologist because they're going to advocate for you in how they do the testing and prepare the report. And there's a lot of soft areas in that, which don't mean that you're manipulating the system, but you're protecting yourself because at the end of the day, if you have cognitive impairment, the treatment protocols for it are limited, right? We all know there's medication for there, you know, there's some medications, there's some therapies, but at the end of the day, in the long-term disability space, what you're really getting a neuropsychological evaluation for is to support your claim more than anything else. There's not going to be the magic treatment that's going to cure it, at least not in current medicine without some significant advances. So that that's another element. And there are lots of physical issues that cause cognitive issues. So we've dealt with that much, many times over the years for clients. So doing that kind of testing, let's say you come back with a mild cognitive impairment and maybe it's not enough to qualify to kick in your disability program. Can that also come back to haunt you as a physician? Like I know the contracts that I sign at work, my employer has the right to see all of my medical data, no matter where it's done, you know, no matter what it's for. And some of the forms we have to fill out says, you know, do you have an, a condition that may impair your ability to practice? Is there a gray area where you make get a partial diagnosis that doesn't qualify you to take disability, but comes back to haunt you on the job? The answer is mostly no, it okay. doesn't. And the key that you said is the question on the, on the forms of, do you have something that may impair you? And that's a judgment call. So most healthcare providers who go to a doctor and have a condition, 
the doctor who's treating them will defer to their determination as to whether they think it's safe for them to practice okay. and let them make the choice of when they're going to stop or not stop. And, it, and so there's a lot of gray and a lot of discretion in how the doctor's going to approach that. Um, okay. And there's some doctors that draw a red line there and say, I'm not going there because I don't want that testing. At the end of the day, our job or my job is to tell you what you need to do to maximize the likelihood you're going to get paid okay. and to warn you of the pitfalls. But it's not my job to tell you how you're going to live your life. If you say it is, no matter what happens, I'm going to keep playing golf. I love golf and I'm not going to stop. All I can do is warn you of what the consequences might be if you continue to play golf, right? I can't tell. I'm not telling you to stop. That's my job is to advise, not to dictate how you live your life or what choices. Sure. If I tell you it's much more likely you're going to get paid with a neuropsych evaluation and you don't want to get one, my job is to warn you that there may be a risk. Okay. And you get to make the choice after that. Fair enough. Fair enough. What about differences in policies? Kind of, sorry, I'm stepping back for a minute, but what if you have an employer-sponsored policy versus a private policy? Are there different aspects to trying to file a claim with either one of those? Yes, there are major differences. If it's an employer-sponsored policy, and I'm not talking about an association policy, for example, if it's an employer-sponsored policy in general, it's going to be governed by this federal, this complex, highly reticulated set of statutes and regulations under a law called ERISA, which most people are familiar with in general. But if a policy is governed by ERISA, you're going to have to follow the procedures that ERISA requires, and most of them are laid out in the what they call the plan document, which is in fact the policy sometimes. And it tells you that you're going to have to submit certain things, do certain things, and if the claim is denied, you're going to be required to submit a written appeal. And if you don't do the written appeal, you can't go to court. It's called an exhaustion of your administrative remedies. And ERISA is a, is a tough place to be a lot of times with policies. There are a lot of things about ERISA that affect the ability of an insured to collect money under these policies that's not nearly as good as a private policy. And without getting into all the details about that, when you've got both private and group policies or just a group policy, Number one, you have to make sure that it actually is a group policy that will be governed by ERISA. And that's really a lawyer function more than anything else. But generally speaking, like, like I said, you got your policy through the AMA or the ADA. That's not an ERISA governed policy. That's an association policy. They're not your employer. Okay. And generally speaking, if you are employed by the government, okay, whether it's municipal, city, state, federal, those policies are not governed by ERISA because the government was accepted from anything to do with ERISA, because ERISA was designed to protect employees from un unscrupulous employers who, at the time the law was passed, stole their pension and trust fund monies. And government was deemed not to be going to do that, right? So maybe they do, but <laughs> I, that's a different issue. <laughs> Podcast for another day. <laughs> so... Generally speaking, if it's an association policy or you work for the government, it won't be ERISA. And there are other situations where ERISA doesn't apply, but you really want to talk to a lawyer if it's a group policy to see whether it's going to be governed by ERISA. And you'll see in those group policies, a lot of things are watered down in terms of the language. So typically, 
you got to look to see whether you have an own occupation provision that after a couple of years might turn into an any occupation definition. So you're disabled for two years or five years if you can't do your own occupation. And then after that, it might be any occupation that you're, you know, reasonably qualified to perform based on your education, training, or experience. It may have different language. You have to look at that. The typically those policies will say your occupation is not what you're doing for a specific employer, but it's as your occupation is defined in the national economy. And more than 40 hours is not considered part of your own occupation. They look at it as a 40 hour work week. So if you're working 60 hours and taking call and, you know, they're not going to count that under these policies. So there's things under these policies. They also offset for other benefits, in particular, social security disability, and they make you apply for it. They offset for workers' top. Any kind of government benefits get offset, pension benefits. And so they're just not as good as a private policy, but. One thing that's really cool about them is if you own, if you own a bunch of individual policies that pay you a lot of money every month, if you become disabled, you can then still get employed somewhere and get a group policy for whatever benefit is available to you that just layers over your policies. Whereas if you work for a hospital and you have a good group policy, they're going to count the income you can make from that disability towards whether you qualify for your individual policies. So. You really want to go out and get those individual policies if you know you're going to affiliate with a group that has a group policy benefit because you're going to get that benefit by being employed by that group, whereas you can't do it the other way. Gotcha. And this is more of a housekeeping question, but I know a lot of physicians, when we have something starting to go on, we kind of just ask our friend at work, like, hey, will you call in a muscle relaxer? I think I just stubbed my toe. Will you call in an x-ray for me? Does that ever come back to bite you when you're trying to, when you figure out it's something really serious? It comes back to bite you if there's a problem with proving when your disability started and the course of treatment. It's less of a problem than you would think, but it can be a problem. Really, that's a classic. It depends. I my experience doing this for 32 years or whatever I've been doing, I hate to say it, but age myself, but that's been less of a problem. It's come up maybe as a problem a few times, but not nearly as much as you would think. Oh, that's good. Good. Yeah. I would, yeah. That's just something else. One other thing that I would point out just to be aware of is the policies that you purchase individually have a contestability clause. And if you've made a misrepresentation on your application within two years, they can rescind even if that misrepresentation was unintentional or a mistake or your broker filled it out and not you. And so if you're making a claim within two years, it's going to be easier for the insurance company to contest the policy and seek to rescind it. And I would be just very, it's about, you know, let the buyer beware. If you're applying for disability insurance, make sure you have some involvement in the questions asked on the application and your answers to them. Okay. A lot of people, the broker can say, and I'm not, this is not the cast aspersions at brokers at, in any way, but sometimes some will say, you don't need to put that down. And I would respectfully beg to differ in more instances than not about that. So be cautious about that and recognize if you're thinking about filing a claim, you know, one of the things we always do as lawyers is I look at that application. I look at when you're going to be making your claim. I look at when that two years is. Now, group coverage is better in this. Typically, there's a pre-existing condition exclusion. 
But if you've been covered by the policy for more than a year before you make the claim, then they can't deny the claim for a pre-existing condition. So something else people do, you know, they, they start feeling bad and nine months in, they file their claim. And the next thing you know, they don't have coverage because they had a condition that they sought treatment for in the 90 days prior to getting the, getting on the coverage. So just those are timeframes that can come up and people need to be aware of. Okay. At the end of the day, how many times or how, what's the percentage of people that end up in litigation over these types of things? I'd say 15%. So what I would say is if you come to our firm before you've made your claim and we take your case, we're not taking a case unless we think we can, we have, there's a good chance we're going to be able to deliver you something for the value of the services you're going to pay for. Sure. Say you're in the 95% chance you're going to get paid. If you come in the middle of it and there's things we have to fix, then it drops maybe down to where I said 85% get paid. And if they, if their claim is going to get disputed and it's one of these old policies, a lot of times before we even sue, they can get bought rather than have to sue. And so, but if you come in and you're denied, that percentage is probably going to go down in terms of overturning it. Was it a denial on an ERISA governed policy? Was it a denial under a private policy? But I would say, if we're going to take your case for litigation, that, you know, I always, one of my favorite sayings besides making insurance companies keep their promises. It's not a question of when it, whether an insurance company is going to pay, it's when and how much. So the vast majority of cases we litigate set it. So you probably got a 90% chance of getting something. It's the, how long is it going to take and how much is it going to be? And sometimes the, how much it's going to be may be very disappointing, depending on the circumstances. <laughs> sometimes it make you very happy, but you know, the litigation these cases, most of whether you're disabled or whether you're not disabled, if that's what the case is, it, the only place it's going is to trial. And nobody wants to go to trial because they're all or nothing propositions. You either get zero or you get put back on claim and get your, get your arrears and get paid every month going forward. And the insurance companies typically don't want to take the risk. The lawyers would prefer they're getting 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 cases from an insurance company. They lose a trial, they could lose a client. Makes sense. Not just as one case, right? And if you're the disabled individual, you spend all that money or you spend, even if you're on contingency, you're going to pay for experts or whatever it is and you lose, you get nothing. Spend the proposition. You get zero, right? So there's a lot of risk, you know, in going in and playing that game of roulette. I know you made the comment earlier that it's better to contact the lawyer maybe before you would process a claim with a disability policy. Are there very many lawyers like you that specialize in, you know, insurance recovery or are you kind of a niche attorney? It's a very, very narrow niche. So there are other attorneys that do it, but there are not many. Okay. So I've been in a lot of business groups, networking groups. And when I tell people what I do as an insurance recovery lawyer, even that in and of itself, they haven't really heard of. And then if you're talking about long-term disability claims and litigations, it's even narrower niche. 
But there are some firms around the country that do it. It's just a very small number. I know you're based out of New York. Do you work with clients across the nation or are you really just focused on those or clients in New York? No, we have clients all over the country. We have about 300 clients right now in varying stages of the claims process. Most of those came to us and are getting paid and continue to get paid. And they just keep us on board because it's not an expensive proposition. Pay us for every time, whether it's quarterly, annually, semi-annually, that a monthly you know, progress report and attending physician statement needs to go in. So they'll flow that through us and the checks go directly to them. And then if something bubbles up, the insurance company wants a field interview or wants, wants you to be examined by a doctor or asks for some weird questions. They have a law firm that knows everything and is ready to ramp up and just deal with it a lot more easily than stopping. And it's a peace of mind thing. You're not, nobody's required to do it, obviously. But those clients are everywhere from California to Maine to Florida to Arizona to New Hampshire to, I don't know if we have any in Alaska. I'll say that. <laughs> At the moment, we have had clients in Alaska. So yes, in the claims process, we do it all over the country. And I think I saw on your website, you actually used to work on the other side of the aisle. So maybe you understand a little bit more on what the insurance companies are thinking. Is that correct? Yes, I did. I didn't do long-term disability on that side, but I did insurance recovery on a very large scale for big firm before I switched sides a long, long time ago. Well, thanks for coming to our side. We need some people to protect us. It's fun. Look, it's, it's fun. And I like representing people much more than I like representing institutions. And even small businesses are people, you know, they're run by usually a small, either one person or one or two people. And it's real. And I like real. So you're welcome. <laughs> we need you. So if anyone wanted to get in touch with you, ask questions about maybe a disability claim they have coming up, how would they get in touch with you, Evan? Well, they go to my website and my contact information is there. The website's www.schlawpc.com. Schwartz, Conroy, and Hack is the firm. So that's the first three letters of the name, schlawpc.com. My contact information is there. I get a lot of people that email me and you can email me anytime or you can call the office. Typically, if you're looking for a consultation, you know, we ask that you send the policies first so we can take a look at them before we get on the phone with you. But happy to do that. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything I should have asked you about today that we didn't cover? Um, there's so many things about long-term disability that we could get into. What happens that we could talk about what happens in the during the claims process, field interviews and IMEs and surveillance and all those fun things. But I think today for get a general understanding of what to think about as a healthcare provider, if you're potentially going down the road of one of these is, you know, know what policies you have. And if you're thinking about doing this, a lawyer for us, for example, we don't charge clients for an initial consultation. And just to get a sense of what you're thinking about, what you're doing, Talk to that lawyer. Don't just, don't tell anybody. Get the information you need to know about the path that you're going to travel. Sounds like great advice. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I like meeting you and hope to see you again in the future. Well, nice to meet you virtually, Dr. Tammy. Seems like you got a great program and I appreciate the opportunity to be on it. Everybody have a wonderful, happy and healthy end of 2022. All right. 
And thank you all to the people listening today. I hope you'll join me again next week on Grand Rounds. If you're ready to start boosting your earning power with locums, head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com slash payday to learn more.